you run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere, available from any device, uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android, and all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now. And it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of My Ruby Story. This week, we're talking to Jeremy Evans. Jeremy, do you want to say hello? Hello. Now, uh, you were on episode 210 of Ruby Rogues. We talked about Rhoda and routing trees. Um, it, it seems like the things that you're best known for are Rhoda and SQL. Yeah, I think that's correct. Mostly for, for SQL and then recently more for Rhoda. Yep. I know a few people who are really gung-ho about Rhoda. So. That's, that's good to hear. <laughs> yep. So, yeah. Do you want to just give a brief introduction, just kind of who you are, where you come from? Um, you know, why you're world famous and then we will get into all of the other stuff. <laughs> Am I world famous? Um, yeah, so I mean, my name is Jeremy. I'm, I've been programming in Ruby since, Ruby since about 2004. Um, starting out with Rails uh, for like think my first three or four years, and then uh, using Sinatra for about uh, from about 2008 to about 2014 when I started working on Rhoda. Um, and then pretty much the whole time, uh, since people started knowing, sort of being familiar with me in 2008, I've been working primarily on SQL, um, improving it since taking it over. It was started in 2007 by another developer, and in 2008 I took it over. So I've been working on that for almost 10 years now, which is pretty amazing. That's, that's awesome. Um, and it's funny, you know, we, we get people on who have just, you know, done Ruby for the last few years, and we have people who have been doing it for the last forever. And it's, it's really interesting just to see, you know, where, where everybody's experience is and what they've done. Um, you know, and I've used SQL, I've used Rhoda, um, and they're, they're really interesting projects. And you mentioned that you have another one called Auth. We'll probably dig into that here in a little bit. Um, but I, I want to kind of go back. I mean, you've been in the Ruby community for a long time. Um, but even before then, how did you get into programming? So my first introduction to programming was in college in 1998. Um, I just, I was a math major. I ended up taking an introduction to programming class. Uh, having no previous real programming experience. And this class used a C++, and uh, I, I just found it really interesting. Um, eventually, I took the next two courses in the series, which are intermediate programming and advanced programming, and those were also in C++. Um, and I also took a class on Java applets, um, for, which were still available at the time. So, um, and all these classes were taught by the same professor. He was a math professor, but he he had some programming experience, um, so it wasn't really hardcore CS uh, stuff. Um, but it was good. It was a really good introduction to programming in general. And I, I didn't really consider it a career at the time. Um, I was just sort of doing it, sort of doing it for fun um, and because I liked it. 
Now, after graduating from college in 2000, I did occasionally use the like the C++ programming um, for some personal projects, but mostly I forgot about programming. Um, and I was doing client support and systems and network administration for the same government agency I work at now. And in early 2003, one of the executives asked me to take responsibility for maintaining the agency's public and internal websites. And since I had some previous exposure to PHP, I started like learning that and migrating websites from static sites to PHP sites. Uh-huh. And while I was fairly successful using PHP, by the end of 2003, I was, I was a bit frustrated with it, and I was looking for something, a new programming language to learn. And I started learning Python. And for the first time, I was doing a lot of programming for personal reasons and a lot of systems administrative-related uh, programming. Um, I did dip, dip my toes into using Python for web-related work, um, but at the time, PHP was so much easier than Python in the web area. This was before Django and a lot of the other Python web, web programming. Um, so I ended up using PHP for the web programming and Python for the non-web programming. And I, at work, I started doing a lot more time programming and a lot less doing client support and systems and network administration. Interesting. So, so you uh, you started doing that. You started maintaining the websites. Uh, how did you wind up getting into Ruby? Were, were those websites in Rails, or was this before Rails? This was before Rails. This was like 2003. I think Rails wasn't didn't come all around to like. I want to say July, June, July, 2004. So um, I was using PHP for the websites. Um, I was using Python for sort of the script, you know, basic systems network administration type stuff. And I started using using Python, I want, I want to say early 2004. And near the end of 2004, I was looking for another language to learn. And this was sort of right after Rails was first started publicizing about it. People were like amazed about how fast you could uh, write, you know, uh, ap- applications with it. So I started, you know, just using Rails. It was, I think, around version 0.8.5 at the time. And there was an initial learning curve coming from Python, which was a language I was at that time more familiar with. And after about a month, I just I found Ruby so much more enjoyable than using Python. I just started using it for, like, everything. And then for the website part, I just saw how Rails was so much better than the spaghetti PHP that I was using. So I was using like frameworkless PHP, which was just, I mean, in hindsight, really awful, but um, it, I mean, it got the job done and it was really yeah. easy to pick up on. That's that's, some, that's why PHP's main strength is you can like go from zero to something working incredibly quickly without a lot of knowledge. Um, so I think the, the first thing I really liked about Ruby, I, I think a lot of people experienced this um, coming from Python, was the ability to use blocks and especially um, combining the usage of blocks with things like begin, rescue, and ensure to handle resource management for things like file management and transactions. Because that was something that was, for me as a Python developer, very painful at the time. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So, you know, you mentioned that you kind of went on this journey through Rails and Sinatra, and then you built Rhoda. Um, I'm curious, you know, as, as time has gone on, um, how has your view on code changed and how has your view on Ruby changed? Um, that's hard to say. Uh, I don't know if I have a good answer, a good answer for that. I, I think I, I still have the sort of a Python mindset. Um, like Ruby is like, there's so many ways to do things coming from Perl. Python's like, there's one good way to do something. Uh-huh. So Ruby, uh, a lot of things in Ruby, let's just create aliases for everything. And I don't know if that's, I don't know if I agree with that mindset. I, I try to avoid aliases for methods unless, the methods that themselves are really poorly named. Um, having multiple ways to do something, I don't think in a lot of cases is a good thing. Um, so that's one thing about Ruby I would say I'm not 
too happy about. But uh, it, it, I don't think the fact that there is multiple user thing it really gets in the way in terms of what I'm doing. Um, but I try to be, I try to make my code more robust. I certainly try to do more tests. When I was first into Ruby, I don't think I wrote any automated tests at all. I probably didn't start writing automated tests for my code probably until like when I started maintaining SQL in 2008. So I took over that library. It already had existing tests, which were very good. Uh -huh. um, and that was sort of the first introduction, like, wow, I'm taking over main maintainership for something that's, you know, you know, at least even not as widely used as it is now, was still used by quite a few people. And I'm like, I don't know how I can do this. And then I saw the test it had, I'm like, wow, that's that's so cool. That's why I started like writing tests for all of my own applications. Interesting. So uh, I don't know that I knew that you took over SQL as opposed to created it. Um, <laughs> what was that like? Well, it was it was pretty amazing for me actually because uh, SQL backstory. It started. I think the original work was in 2006. And it was initial initial release was in 2007, and by 2008, like even one year after it was released, the initial author, his name is uh, Sharon Rosner, um, basically emailed a few people that had contributed to SQL since its initial release and said, "Hey, I no longer want to do this anymore. Does anyone else want to take it over?" And I was one of the. I had actually only been using SQL for about a month at the time. I had, the only thing I'd done for SQL is I had submitted a um, a sort of code for to have a add to, to add association support to it. So at the time I started using SQL, I had no association support, like one to many, many to one, that sort of thing. Uh -huh. So I add that's the first thing I added. And then I want to say a few weeks after that is when he decided he didn't want to work on it anymore. So that's sort of when I took it over. And originally uh, I was going to work on the model part of it because that was the part for association stuff right. that I was more familiar with. And um someone else was going to work on the sort of lower level database related code and they ended up not having time. So I took that over as well. So, and again, the first, first year was basically just trying to clean up things because while the code was in good shape, the library was sort of all over the place in terms of how it was programmed. So it took a long time to clean it up. Um, I think three months after I took it over, we had another major release another, and then a year after that, we had another major release. So there was a lot of initial work cleaning it up and discovering how it did work and what was working with it and what wasn't working with it and trying to make the decisions about where to go fairly early on um, so there's not too much breakage. Gotcha. Now, um, had you been making other contributions to open source before that, or was this kind of your first foray into that as well? No, I mean, even when I was working with Python, I had re released, uh, I think, one or two. Um, I would say I, I had a few open source projects, even in Python, and when I was working in Ruby, some smaller stuff. I had some Rails extensions, um, one was called Scaffolding Extensions, which was an attempt to sort of build out of Rails scaffolding, tack onto it stuff that you could build an automated front end like you have with Active Admin. And I still uh -huh. sort of do this. Um, I have something that works with Rhoda and Sinatra and Rails. It's called AutoForme. Um, so it's sort of in that same vein. That's sort of how I got started doing. That was my thing. Like my first Ruby open source library was this attempts to extend rail scaffolding to support more. Gotcha. Um, now you also mentioned that you moved into Sinatra for a long time and, and I've seen people kind of, uh, move back and forth depending on how they feel about the opinions in rails or, uh, you know, the amount of cognitive load that rails has, cause there's a lot going on there. Um, did you go whole hog away from Rails into Sinatra? And what what were the reasons for picking that up and using it for some of the things you worked on? 
I would say for all the new code I wrote sort of after 2008, I used Nacho for everything. I, I had Rails uh, applications that were written from like 2005 right. to 2008 um, that were in Rails. And in some of the smaller ones, I converted them to Sinatra. But in a lot of cases, I kept them in Rails simply because the transition probably wasn't worth it. Uh-huh. Um, eventually, when I created Rhoda, the benefits were enough um, that I, I ended up converting the Rails sites to, to Rhoda. Um, but when I was doing it with Sinatra, I just I didn't feel it was worth the effort. Um, part of the reason for that is Sinatra doesn't have good tools for managing large amounts of websites. I mean, large amounts of large applications with large numbers of routes. Um, it, even with the recent release of Sinatra 2, it still uses sort of an array of routes that you have to iterate over as opposed to a tree. And whenever there's like shared code, like you have Rails, you have before filters around whole controllers. Uh-huh. Um, you can do that with Sinatra, but it's it's kind of clunky. Um, and it's in addition to being clunky, it's also kind of slow. You have to basically parse the route twice. It's not something that's that's really great to use. That's one of the things I like a lot better about Rhoda is it's sort of built exactly for handling small cases as well and also scaling up to handle very large cases as well. Gotcha. Now, one thing that I'm curious about is, you know, I think, oh, okay, well, what's it like to create a framework? And then I'm like, uh, the, just the idea for me of going, oh, well, gee, I should create a framework seems a little bit ambitious to me. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I feel the same way. Like C- SQL was like the largest application, I mean, largest library ever maintained. And again, I didn't create it because I'm not usually a very ambitious guy. So it sounds like, like something I would create. And Rota was sort of the same way. It was also not really uh, created. It was forked from another library called Cuba and extensively modified from that. But the, the base was already there with Cuba. I'd say the first time I sort of built a framework myself was with the authorization library, or the, sorry, the authentication library that I work on, which is called Rodoth. It's actually a, a Rodo plugin that adds authentication. And that was the, sort of my first time sort of building a framework myself. Um, and I would say in some cases, I think it works really well. Um, some of the code seems to be a bit inscrutable for outsiders. So I would say it's definitely not perfect in that regard, but... Um, I think it works pretty well. Um, I've been working on that for a couple of years now. Gotcha. So, yeah, just just talking about all of this stuff. Um, you know, you mentioned you you modified Cuba, you modified, or you know, you took over for uh, SQL. I mean, again, you know, what's the inspiration for these? Do you just see a better way? Is it mostly experimentation that kind of grows into something else, or? Well, yeah, certainly with SQL, um, I basically took it over and then I had to run with it. Um, for Cuba, I was talking to, to the Cuba developers and I sort of had different ideas about what I wanted to do that, that they were really amenable to making modifications for, which, you know, when they have existing users, right. I can really understand some of the changes I would like to, to wasn't making where we're, we're going to be backwards incompatible. Um, the main thing I wanted was a plugin system that you could do so you could modify any part of the framework. And that's sort of something they were against. And it would have allowed it so that you could have used Cuba and then added all this other stuff on top of it using plugin. And they just weren't for this whole plugin idea. So that's one of the things that uh, Rota features is this plugin system where any part of the framework is extendable and overridable. SQL is pretty much like that as well. Um, definitely the model part, I had that from a long time. I took the idea from plugins from the initial stuff that existed in SQL model. Um, even back in 2008 when I took it over, it had this idea of this is how a plugin is structured. 
um, and how it works. And I sort of took that idea forward um, in uh, in SQL, going forward, adding it to the lower level parts of SQL later, and then adding it to Rhoda, and then eventually adding it to Rhodoff as well. Basically, a similar idea that you extend the uh, module something and you just add on features so you can always call super to get the default behavior, um, but you can modify any part of the framework. Gotcha. Now, do you want to talk about what Rodoff is for a minute? So Rodoff is an authentication framework, I want to say similar to uh, Devise in Rails. Um, it deals with authentication. It's a little bit more full-featured, um, but it's obviously it's not used nearly as much. So there's less people looking at it. And for, obviously, a security-sensitive library, that's that's pretty important. Um, I'd certainly like to get more eyes on Rodoff and, and how it works. Um, but it, it basically does the same thing as Devise. You log in, create accounts, verify accounts, reset passwords, um, handle unlock stuff, unlocking accounts that they get locked out. Um, some of the things it offers over device uh, for sort of information security policy stuff like account um, expiration, password expiration, things like that that are more, uh, I want to say, corporate. Um, you can get it with the device, with external tools, where it sort of has it built in. And the other thing it has that devices doesn't have built in, it has built-in support for two-factor authentication uh, via one-time passwords. So that's sort of the two features where it really uh, goes beyond and what device offers by default. Now you can add external um, libraries that work with the device that can add those. So it's not like you don't have with this device, it's just not built in. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Uh, are, are there any other projects that you've worked on in open source or that people use that you want to talk about? Um, let's see. Uh, in terms of like Ruby libraries, um, one of my, I think after SQL, my most downloaded library is eRuby, which is, again, a fork of eRubis, which is the, so eRubis was the default template processor for, processor for Rails. So like all the, all the ERB pro templates in Rails, they went through eRubis. And then I think in Rails 5.1, they switched to this eRuby, which was a very cut down, um, basically the same algorithms that uh, eRubis used, um, but cut down and made as small as possible. It's like a single file type thing um, with only like 100 lines. It's like a tenth of the memory uh, footprint. Um, it's not any faster because it's basically the exactly the same as, as what was done before. Um, but it was it was sort of easier to use, um, and Rails switched to it uh, in, in 5.1. Um, it's also you, the default ERB processor in Tilt, um, starting, I think, in Tilt uh, 2.06 or 7 or something. And the other, other, I think, library I have that's been downloaded a lot is the American Date Gem, which sort of makes date.parse work like it did in Ruby 187 in that it allows it to handle the month slash day slash year American-style dates, which I think everyone agrees are stupid, but are used by a lot of people. Yeah. Um, other than that, I mean, I, I've been working more recently on changes to Ruby itself. Um, so uh, in Ruby 2.4, I added uh, this ability for you to filter and process warnings by overriding warning.warn. Um, and then in 2.5, I added the frozen error exception class. And I'm working on uh, a patch that I submitted yesterday for 2.6, hopefully, um, that will make a constant um, lookup, a you know, private constant lookup, similar to private method lookup in that it, it'll call const missing instead of calling, instead of just raising an exception. So the way Ruby works, if you have a private method and you call it with like a public interface, like, you know, receiver dot method, uh -huh. 
it actually that doesn't raise the exception immediately. You can actually catch those through method missing. So method missing, the default method missing, is actually what raises the error. Um, and you can override that and, and make it handle uh, public method calls differently than private method calls. So this would basically do the same change for uh, for constants. Um, it basically makes it makes them similar. One of the reasons I want to do it is uh, it may, allows you to deprecate um, and move stuff from public to private. A lot of people, when they start off working in Ruby, they they write this uh, API that has like everything public. When, when when I took over SQL, all methods were public. <laughs> everything was public. <laughs> no private methods at all. Um, and it would have been really nice to have this thing where I could say, okay, I, I have this method that's public. It really doesn't make sense for it to be public. It should be made private. I don't want to change the name of the method. But I want to, if it's called publicly, I want to deprecate it, like show a deprecation warning. Right. Um, and you can actually do this in Ruby, um, but but you can't do it with constants. The private constants, I think, were introduced in, I don't know, two, two zero, two one. When I, I forget exactly when they were introduced. But when they were introduced, they didn't make it the same as method lookup in that the lookup process is what raises the error, not the, not the const missing call. So that's one of the things I'm hoping to get into Ruby 2.6. Makes sense. Uh, the other thing I work on that's open source, um, that's reasonably well known, is I'm I'm an OpenBSD developer. And on OpenBSD, I mostly work on making sure that Ruby runs really well in OpenBSD. So that's the other thing that I, I sort of work on, and I'm sort of known for in the OpenBSD community is working on Ruby. Gotcha. Well, I usually ask what you're working on, so uh, I think you covered that. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, cool. Well, um, one other thing that I just wanted to ask that's not really in the list of questions I sent you beforehand was, um, it seems like you've worked on some of these higher profile Ruby libraries. Um, do you have any advice for people who are thinking about getting into open source or, you know, may wind up finding themselves maintaining a widely used library? Well, I would say the easiest thing, way to get started in open source, um, even if you don't have any technical uh, like programming ability, um, read the documentation, uh, fix documentation bugs. I can tell you in my do in my documentation, I write quite a bit of documentation. A lot of it has bugs. Um, even to like simple like trying the code examples in documentation and posting when it doesn't work, which will be fairly often, um, is a good way to get some experience. Um, for if you do have some programming skills. Um, running tests, and then especially if you use the library and you see a bug in it, it doesn't work the way you expect, see if you can fix it. Um, I want to say see if you can fix it before filing a bug, simply just get more experience, because often you'll say, well, I try to fix it. It's not really fixable. It's just how the library has to work. Um, but in some cases, there actually is a bug there, and it's it's much better for much easier for maintainer if they get a pull request, even if it's not like the way they would do it, basically to get an idea of how it can be done. Um, bug reports, uh, not that they're bad, but they're certainly not as good as pull requests, even if you don't end up using the code in the pull right. request. Um, especially, I want to say that one of the best things you can do, add a failing test case. Um, even if you don't have a solution in code, it's like, this is how it should work or how I think it should work. Um, I don't know how to fix it, but there's a failing test case. Because if I get a bug report, the first thing I'm doing is I'm trying to write a failing test case. Uh, have the test case fail and then write, you know, mm -hmm. fix the code so it passes. So submitting a failing test case, even if you don't have working code, is one of the best ways to contribute to projects. That makes a lot of sense. And yeah, I, I, I love the approach because, yeah, then at least they have some kind of uh, regression test. So when they do get it fixed, 
you know, th- th- yeah, they know that it works. Yeah, they know that it stays fixed. <laughs> that's, that's the most important thing. Yep, absolutely. Well, um, yeah, so if people want to keep up on what you're working on now or see what's changing in Rhoda or SQL um, or, or Rhodoth or any of the other things that you're working on, uh, what are the best places to do that? Well, all my projects have um, Google groups. Um, so all the release announcements are posted there. Any discussion about the libraries occurs there. Uh, so the Google groups for each of the libraries are probably the best place to go. If you follow me on Twitter, um, my, my handle there is Jeremy Evans Zero, the number zero. Um, I post all the anytime that I release a, a you know a minor version of any of the libraries, major or minor version, I'm posting there with a link to the Google group um, for discussion. So for libraries I work on, that's really the best way to follow them. Gotcha. I mean, you can also subscribe on GitHub and and get the full commit logs if that's sort of the detail level that you want. Um, but they can be fairly verbose if you do that. Right. Now, do you blog or anything else or, you know, what's your GitHub handle? Is it the same as your Twitter? Uh, GitHub is just Jeremy Evans um, because Twitter is Jeremy Evans zero simply because Jeremy Evans was already taken. Uh, so GitHub, I got there first. So I have Jeremy Evans on GitHub. Um, I don't I used to blog a little bit and I just I found that it wasn't a good use of my time. Um, I, I, I think I'd rather be programming than, than writing, uh, you know, explanatory stuff that would go in a blog post. I did it for a while. I went for every, let's say for a few months, it was like every day I was trying to write a blog post about SQL and eventually just got burned out. I'm like, this is just, is not a good use of my time. Um, so I stopped doing that. Uh, so mostly if I have free time to work on open source, I'm working on programming parts of open source, um, or I'm writing documentation that goes into the libraries. I'm not working on sort of blog posts, um, I really would like if other people worked on blog posts, but it, it's not something I'm, I don't think I'm particularly skilled at doing anyways. Uh-huh. Gotcha. All right. Well, the last section of the show is picks. This episode is sponsored by Linode. Linode is offering listeners of this podcast a $20 credit, which is good for four free months at their lowest plan. Their plans start at one gigabyte of RAM for $5 a month. You can get your servers in any of their 10 data centers, and their high memory plans start at 16 gigabytes. Get a server running in under a minute. They do hourly billing with a monthly cap on all plans and add-on services like backups, node balancers, long view, etc. VMs for full control, running Docker containers, encrypted disks, VPNs, etc. You can run a private Git server. They provide native SSD storage, 200 gigabit network, and Intel E5 processors. They have 24-7 friendly support, even on holidays, and a seven-day money-back guaranteed. So go check them out at linode.com slash rubyrogues. Do you want me to go first? or? Yeah, go ahead. All right, so the last time I was on the show, one of my picks was Ease, which is a game series. It's like YS. It's a game series by the Japanese developer uh, Nihon Falcom. And my first pick this time is another one of Falcom's series, which is known as the Trail series, or if you speak Japanese, it's the Kaseki series. And like the E series, the Trail series has some great music that's composed and performed by Falcom's musicians. And unlike the E series, which is more of an action RPG that focuses on combat, Trails or Kaseki is more of a traditional RPG focusing on characters and plot. Um, so currently, Falcom has released eight of these games in this Trail series since 2004. So it's been going on a long time. And five of these have been translated into English by a company named uh, Xseed. So if you're if sort of, sort of interested in playing traditional RPG, uh, Japanese RPGs, if that's something you like, definitely check out the Trails or Kaseki series. 
And my second pick today is OpenBSD. So while I've been using Ruby since 2004, I've actually been involved with OpenBSD longer. I started using OpenBSD in, in mid-2002, and it's a Unix-like operating system that tra traces its roots uh, back to the original versions of Unix back in the 70s. Um, it's an operating system known primarily for security, but it's also known for being very simple to use and having great documentation. So I've been using OpenBSD as the only operating system on my personal workstation, laptops, and servers for over 10 years, uh, as well as all the security-sensitive perimeter servers at work. And I've been an OpenBSD developer uh, since 2010, focusing, again, mostly on making sure that Ruby runs really well in OpenBSD. And while OpenBSD certainly is not for everyone, if you're comfortable on the command line and you don't mind configuring your system using a text editor, you should probably be okay with using OpenBSD. Awesome. Um, I'm going to jump in here with kind of a different tack on uh, picks. So I have been working on finalizing the how to get a job uh, course that I've been putting together. And a few of the resources that I tell people to check out, I'm just going to throw out on here. Uh, one of them is glassdoor.com. Uh, so Glassdoor is a website where people actually go on and they usually put in information like salary information, uh, benefits information. They write reviews on the interview process for a company and stuff like that. And so if you're looking at a particular company uh, looking to apply there, you can find out a lot of information about what technologies they use and what kinds of questions they ask and how you can prepare for the interview. So I'm going to throw that out there. And then another tool that I also walk people through a little bit on using is LinkedIn. Um, so a lot of people, you know, they know that, oh, well, my coworkers can write reviews and, you know, they, they kind of go out of their way to make a whole bunch of connections. But you can also do searches. And so you can do searches on a company. You can find out who you know at the company. You can find out, again, what kinds of things that they're talking about. Usually it's aimed more at their customer base than their developer, uh, you know, pool of developers they may hire from. But you can still find out a lot of information there. You can connect, connect with people. If you're connected with somebody at the company, you can get their email address and other information from it. And so it's a terrific way to just kind of make those connections. And then, you know, obviously, I, I, the last one is meetup.com, uh, just to find meetup groups. Uh, you know, I walk you through the process of making connections and making the most of the relationships that you would make at, uh, at the meetup groups. But I just, you know... It's a great place if you're just looking to find or meet people in your area. Um, Meetup.com is a great way to go. And one last thing that I will encourage people to do is if you can't find one in your area, A, I'm, I'm fairly surprised at that if you live within the United States. Um, most area, most people will have one within a half hour drive of where they live. Um, I mean, so unless you live just clear out in the middle of nowhere. Um, and by in the middle of nowhere, I really mean... Um, your, your nearest neighbors are, you know, miles away, not blocks away. Um, you can probably find something. Um, I've, I've had a few people, they say there's no coding groups in my area. I asked them if they looked on madeup.com. They said, no. Um, I asked them for their zip code, typed it in. Hey, are you anywhere near the city? Yeah, it's five minutes away. So, uh, if you don't think there's anything near you, go check. Um, but yeah, those, those are some of the places where I tell people to go make connections with people and get information about companies so that they can figure out what they should be making, um, where they could be making it, um, how to get through the interviews at those companies, and all the rest of that stuff. So I'm going to throw that out there, and then I guess I probably should just tell people where to go to get this job, of course, and that is at getacoderjob.com, um, and uh, you can get in. We walk through how to figure out what kind of job you want, uh, what 
what benefits and other things really matter to you. We take you through the whole process of identifying those companies, finding people that you can connect with at the companies, um, kind of becoming a corporate insider um, and, and kind of circumventing the whole process that they usually go through um, once their network fails by being within their, uh, their professional network. So anyway, um, if you're looking for any information on how to find a job, you're looking for a better deal. We also talk a lot about finding a remote job if that's kind of your jam or again, you live way out in the middle of nowhere and not near anything. Um, you know, we, we cover that too. So anyway, those are my picks. Um, Jeremy, thank you for coming and talking to us. Thank Uh, you very much for having me. Yep. Do you, do you want to kind of preview anything that's coming up in Rhoda or SQL or? Are they, are they just kind of clicking along and, and stuff? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't have like a long list of like, this is what I want to do. It's sort of as, as things come to me. I try to have like releases every month for each of them. Um, so I think I have, I have a short list uh, of some things I'd like to work on. But a lot of times people, most of the ideas come from users as opposed to me. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, once again, thank you for coming. And we will wrap this up and come at you with another story next week. Thank you. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.